I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast. That is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc. Now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now, I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm, and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend Foundations, where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology, knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders in shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, this is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, And as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. 
And you can find even more information on newcalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former law enforcement officer, veteran firefighter, and the man behind Firefighters for Freedom, John Knox. Now, this is an incredibly important conversation because as I record this in January 2024, first responders are still being terminated over vaccine mandates during COVID. So as you will hear, we discuss a host of topics from John's journey into law enforcement, his unique and powerful 9-11 experience, entering the fire service, the arson unit, working in dispatch, vaccine mandates, and much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you John Knox. Enjoy. All right. Well, John, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. And the reason why I say that is I, we just came across each other after you were terminated by LAFD, uh, you know, what, four or five weeks ago now. Um, and this is something that I've brought to the forefront many, many times uh, during the pandemic and after, which is the the, the middle ground of of health, but also um, I'm, I'm going to start that intro again. I just fucked that up completely. Bear with me one moment. I was going off on a fucking tangent. Let me just welcome you to the show. <clears throat> well, John, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. So I came across you. Um, I do follow Firefighters for Freedom. I had one of my friends, uh, Steve Davis from Orange County that was terminated. Uh, well, that was probably a year and a half ago now, two years. And I went right in the heart of all this and and we did an interview with him and Jason Wheat another friend of mine and this is an issue i think that as i know a lot of you talk about most of the country doesn't have to deal with it because common sense prevailed but we're having a conversation where in this case that that didn't happen so i want to start at the very very beginning cuz i don't want this whole conversation to be about that one moment in time so I'd love to actually kind of lead you through your timeline. And then obviously when we get to 2020, we'll start talking about that specific event. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. So <clears throat> I was born in uh, Los Angeles, California. And, uh, you know, middle-class family. My dad was LAPD for 32 years. Um, and that's what I grew up really wanting to do was be law enforcement. That's all I ever knew. Um, and then my mom, you know, she worked for uh, mortgage mortgage industry and stuff like that. So, uh, parents got divorced when I was young, probably, uh, fifth grade, maybe I moved to Europe for a couple of years. 
um, got to experience life in an, another country, a couple countries over there. Um, and then came back to the States, you know, went, went to high school uh, and just started living life. Um, after I got out of high school, I attempted to get on LAPD um, three times you know, took or I mean, everybody who's watching this probably understands the process for, you know, oral interviews and so on and so forth. And that was back in uh, the mid 80s. And uh, I 97%, I think is 97, 98% is what I got on my oral scores every time. But back then you couldn't get on um, unless you scored 100% and had military experience, um, because affirmative action was the big keyword and thing going back then. So <clears throat> that didn't happen. Um, fast forward, you know, I started doing my own businesses. Um, and then I got involved uh, with the sheriff's department um, and worked for them for 11 years. Um, I did search and rescue, uh, was on a helicopter, did just all kinds of stuff. Through that, and then uh, during that time, I had been married, um, went through a divorce, and I had a buddy that I went to high school with, uh, and I had become a paramedic as well while I was in the sheriff's department. So then uh, I had a buddy reach out to me, and he's like, man, you know, you've got a great resume. Do you ever think about going to the fire department? And I was like, no. <laughs> so uh, one thing led to another. I applied to two departments, uh, one up in the Bay Area, Hayward, uh, and got a call for that and turned it down because I decided I didn't want to live in the Bay, the San Francisco Bay, um, which turns out that's probably a good thing, seeing what they've been go going through the past couple of years as well. Um, and then uh, I got hired by LA City. Um, I had applied originally as a firefighter. And then they had, they were in dire needs um, in 2000 uh, for paramedics, short-staffed. I mean, it's like that everywhere. It's never changed, really. Um, and so I got hired on as a single-function paramedic initially. Uh, got hired on, worked for the city, uh, for LAFD for, mm, I think it was probably two and a half years. I was supposed to be cross-trained in nine months, but the way the city works, nothing ever goes. <laughs> on time so then uh, i worked uh cross-trained dual function firefighter paramedic and from that point you know worked as a uh hazmat task force um i worked uh arson counterterrorism. um i did stuff with the tractor units um what else uh but <laughs> yeah just a lot of stuff um i was also not for LAFD, actually LAFD, I was supposed to be, um, I got, I was next in line to go into their, uh, into air operations as a flight medic. Um, but I was a flight medic before for California city fire department, um, out in the Mojave desert, uh, as a flight medic on a helicopter out there. So, you know, I've had a pretty extensive experience. Um, I was at nine 11, um, ground zero there. I worked for the Department of Justice um, dealing uh, with uh, Chris Coslow, who was running the operation there, worked directly for him. Um, 
so I don't know. I've had a vast and varied experience doing a lot of different things. And then fast forward to now, November 27th, uh, I was retired. <laughs> Not by my own means. Forcibly uh, retired. Yeah, I was forced to retire or terminated for um what they consider uh not being in compliance with a condition of employment so and well, that's where we stand today <laughs> well we will get to there but there's so much i want to pull from all the things that you told us all these rungs of your ladder so let's start at the very beginning with this lens that you have now and it's quite a storied career that you have and obviously some some very high highs and now here we are some pretty low lows as well when you look back at the impact of you know over three decades working in LA as a police officer on your father were there any elements that you think were detrimental to him now you've got this wiser perspective elements that were detrimental to my father yeah i mean especially you know the the impact of the job mentally physically etc oh yeah absolutely i mean i would say for sure you know it it was a, a major factor in the divorce of my parents. Um, you know, <clears throat> especially back then, that was late 70s, um, early 80s, late 70s. Uh, you know, mental health wasn't even talked about. Um, so, you know, my dad worked a very uh, unique career path throughout LAPD doing, um, I mean, he worked vice, narcotics. Uh, rode with the Hells Angels for a period undercover. Um, he was in another organization there called Cobra. Um, he was instrumental in putting uh, Suge Knight in jail for death row records. Um, so there's there's a lot of uh, interesting things, you know. And with with that job working in the city of Los Angeles, you know, it really. Uh, puts a lot of stressors on you, you know, and I don't, I don't necessarily know whether he was capable of coping with that, you know, and, and, and dealing with that. And I mean, here we are in 2023 and look at, I mean, there's a lot of lip service to mental health, but there's really not a lot of mental health uh, stuff that the departments are doing, you know? So yeah, I, I think those are all big factors. Um, I had a, a guest on Jay Dobbins. I think he was out of Arizona and he was actually ATF, but he was one of the ones that went undercover with the, I think it was the Hells Angels as well. Very famous story. But again, organizational betrayal is huge in his story too, because his, his department kind of shunned him on the back end of it. Yeah. You know, it's funny at one point, I mean, I had looked at going uh, into the DEA originally um, when I was testing for LAPD because my dad had a friend that was in that and you know, back then, I think the starting salary was $19,000 a year. Plus, you got a 25% bonus pay for being out of the country, you know, South America or whatever. <laughs> back then, I'm like, what? It was so stupid. <laughs> There's no, uh, I don't know, you know. Uh, but when you're young and you look at things and you're like, oh, adrenaline, I want to go do this and I want to save the world, you know. <laughs> and you get there and you're like, whoa. What? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was just talking <laughs> talking to one of the guys. He's um uh let me see, ODA. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think it's ODA. No, fuck. Hold on a second. I'm gonna get I'll 
Let's cut this bit out because I've got to go make this EOD because I would get those too confused. Yeah, I was interviewing a guy, Nick Cush, yesterday, who was an EOD, Navy EOD, which is the explosive kind of expert alongside the SEALs. And he'd been a SWIC um, boat driver as well. So, you know, immersed in that whole community. But he works, you know, in the training department now, air quotes, for the SEALs. So he's developing the the newest of the new technology. Um, and I was asking him about this because so many of the people in the special operations community, they're amazed when they discover you know, overall, the lack of training, support, experts that we have around us, even though we're protecting their families when they're overseas. Yeah, it's 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 a sad state of affairs, you know, in in public service these days. You know, emergency services, both you know, fire and police. Um, there's just literally, it's like ostrich syndrome. You know, everybody knows it's going on. Maybe it's machismo syndrome you know um everybody wants to pound on their chest and be a fire slayer or super cop right but not really understand the necessity of what mental wellness really means because you know it doesn't only affect you it affects everyone around you right your family your wife your mom your dad your kids i mean guys just become taking time bombs between um you know, drugs, alcohol, gambling, porn, you name it, whatever that vice is that they slip into and they just create this swath of destruction. Um, and then if you're not in a good state, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, how do you go out and serve the citizens, you know, that you swore that oath to, you know, it's, it's a really slippery slope. And unfortunately, I think ego gets in the way um, and we need to lose that, you know, be humble. Um, we're all the same thing. We're all humans. And there's not one person on this planet. I don't care how badass you are. What a bitch and motherfucker period. You're, you're going to, you're going to eat it at some point. You know, you can, I, you know, for me, one of the things I noticed, I kind of got a little tangent on mental health here, but the way that I liken it too, is like, I, you know, working in the city of Los Angeles, it's a sh shithole, you know, there's, I mean, it's a great city, but the crime and corruption and the things you see on a daily basis, unfortunately, we see the underbelly of society most of the time, right? So it will affect you. And, you know, we run over 2000 calls a day in the city of Los Angeles. So think about that, you know, on average guys are running 20 calls a shift and those things that you see, you know, you don't want to take that home to your family, really. But there's nothing in in play to help you deal with that. So what do you do? You lock that, you know, for me, it was I had a box, right? And I would just lock all that stuff in a box and chain it all up and make everything like it was honky dory. But doesn't matter after a while, those monsters, you know, they start scratching at that box, right? And little holes get in there and it starts leaking out. And shit happens, man. And before you know it, you know, it's all gonna come out at some point. So you either have to figure out how to deal with it because if you don't you're going to destroy everyone and possibly yourself as well you know so it's sad state of course <laughs> no it is it is the thing is you know when i have these conversations it sounds kind of doom and gloom and if you contrast it to the chess beating greatest job in the world conversations mm -hmm. you hear on some other you know podcasts and rightly so because it is and i adore it but 
the thing is we can't survive on glory alone. We need rest, recovery. We need you know the pay that's not going to require someone to work two other jobs just to make their mortgage. And so this is going to be my call to action in 2024 for the fire service is we are so courageous when it comes to fires, when it comes to, you know, extrications off the side of a bridge or going down a sewer pipe or whatever it is. But yet, and I understand it's because we're so damn beat down and tired as well, that the, the fight is kind of sucked out of us, but we just accept these conditions that we're given. And the perfect example that I'm fighting for at the moment is the work week. Like the fact that a first responder works 56 hours a week minimum, you mm-hmm. know, to go from a dead sleep to, you know, heart rate of 160 as you're you know, driving the back of a tiller on the way to a structure fire or a wreck, you know, it's insanity. And yet the people making those decisions work 40 hours a week and go to their bed every night, you know? So we need to find that same courage that we have on a call to actually advocate for ourselves because we are selfless, but it's getting to the point where there will be no fire service if we keep letting them doing what they're doing to us. And we have to rise up and unite and push back against it. And be like, look, if you want a fire service, that's fine. But you have to start giving us the time to recover from these shifts. You have to give us the tools to keep our bodies healthy, to keep our, our minds healthy. Or you're going to go back to, you know, bucket brigade and no one's going to step up and do this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's 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 the really tricky part. How do you do that, right? Because, you know, like the city of Los Angeles, the city of San Jose, there's still cities in the in this state of California where the mandate is in place, right? And so people don't want to go to work there, right? Because they're forced to take this shot. And so to that point, it's like, okay, we're already short-staffed. You're force hiring every day. You know, you, you go in... F- I mean, it's very not uncommon for you to work in 96, a 120. And it's like, and then you get a day off or you get 12 hours off and then you're, you know, a, a forced hired again, you know? So it's like, at what part does that seem realistic or feasible? It's not, you know, I mean, I've done it and, and I got extremely sick. Um, you know, I spent two and a half years off of work um trying to recover from all kinds of issues but i think what brought a lot of that on was the fact that i was so run down my immune system was crushed from working so much you know and out here in california it's quite different you know i mean we make very good money um and you know there's a lot of places where guys aren't making that kind of money and so they're sea shifting right they're doing they're running a side business. They're doing whatever to get by. Uh, and that's, you know, <laughs> economy-wise, that's a whole nother topic, right, we could talk about. But but what happens here is guys don't see shift. They end up just working overtime because the it's there. We have constant staffing. And so because it's there, it's very easy. And so then they can make a lot of money. Um, and, you know, and then you get sucked into that. And then what happens is now you're living above your means because you're you're relying on overtime because you bought all this shit, <laughs> right? Versus living on your base salary and then that's investment money or whatever, right? You're not relying on that. So now guys get stuck in that mode of they have to work five, six, seven overtime shifts or get force hired, excuse me, every day in order to maintain their lifestyle. So, you know, 
we have to take responsibility on that side as well, right? We can't just say, well, it's the department. Well, no, it's not, bro. You literally, <laughs> you dug yourself into this hole, you know? So now you have to dig yourself out, sell a boat, you know, sell your some of your toys so that you don't have those expenses, that overhead, you know? So there's, there's a lot of issues at hand. Um, but in reality, it all boils down any of it. Anything that we do, we have to take responsibility for our actions, right? Um, it, it doesn't matter whether it's at work, you know, management versus employee or it's husband and wife, right? There's two sides to every story. You know, we have to take responsibility for those actions. It's not always that one person, right? So, yeah, I think this is what's been the the, the barrier to getting these issues fixed is there's been a lot of kind of finger pointing. You know, mm -hmm. and even I would argue that there's some good unions out there, but I've seen a lot of self-serving in, in the unions that I've worked, you know, in the departments I work for. And so then it's, oh, the management this, or it's the union that, or it's the membership, or, you know, whatever it is. And everyone's kind of pointing fingers rather than all getting together and accepting their part of the problem. And one thing I underline a lot, for example, not so much on the California, because I know the schedule when I worked out there was was a different pattern. But over here, we say, oh, I work one day on two days off. Well, we don't. There's nowhere else in the world is a workday 24 hours. It's eight hours with a, with a one hour lunch in between. You know, so we work three days on, one day off. So we tell this fairy tale. We go around telling all our neighbors, I only work 10 days a month. No, you fucking don't. You work 30 days a month. Mm -hmm. Just three of those days are scrunched together in a ball for 24 hours. Yeah. So we're telling that fairy tale. And then we're getting, you know, obviously the, the kind of cities, counties, oh, we don't have the money to, to staff properly. And then, so there's all this myth going on. And the reality is the way that we are being worked between our belief in this, this mythical, um, supposed incredible schedule that we have, and then all the way up to the other kind of levels, is we are bleeding money because our people are falling apart. You know, medical retirements and, and, you know, wrongful death lawsuits and you name it, all the things that happen. And so the money is there, too. But it needs us all to accept our, our part of it. We need to not oppose it because you're an overtime whore and you want this and you don't care about the fact that you've been to 10 fucking firefighter funerals this year. So we have to, to get rid of that. But then we also have to see at the higher level the false economy of the way that we're working and how you would actually not only save your city or county a shitload of money, but you'd increase the delivery of service if you added a fourth platoon so that the men and women could actually get like a full 72-hour period between 24 hours of getting your dick kicked in and the next 24 hours. Yeah, and and you're right on that. Um, but then again, you would, you know, you still fall into that play. And this is where, you know rules would have to be put in there where it's like, okay, you can't work. You know, if, if you've got one day on and then you're off for 72, right. You can't work the, in that 72 hour period. Um, but you, you know, know how you make that happen though? You staff your department properly. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, I see it. I mean, both, both sides. I mean, I can see the argument from both sides. You're going to have the individuals that, you know, are, are chasing that dollar. Um, but it's like, okay, well, you know what, then go do something else in that period of time, you know, start another business, do something to help your community exactly. ever. Um, because this job is so demanding, 
and has, you know, look at the suicide rates. They're higher than any other career out there. Um, you know, and I mean, it's just been on the rise, especially since COVID, you know, I mean, it's, it's through the roof and there's a lot of factors for that. So yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's room to make changes, but then again, that comes back to the unions and, you know, like you said, and I'm going to put this out there and I, I hope all of you union leaders that are listening to this, take heed. You suck period. End of story. There's very few unions and I applaud yay team, the unions that step to the plate for their members, but they're bought and sold and they're controlled opposition. And I've seen it firsthand because I've talked to people all across this country. I mean, we built out, you know, firefighters for freedom. We have approximately 21 chapters and I've created a network. You know, our organization has created this network across the country that I can pick up a phone call and talk to anyone. You know, I got guys calling me from all over Chicago, Florida, New York, DC, Boston, West coast, middle, middle of the country, middle of the country is not as bad, but you know, definitely both sides of the coast are, are bananas. And I hear the same thing over and over. It's literally like a, a playbook. They're all doing the same exact thing. And that's not standing up for their membership. I mean, for the city of Los Angeles, we pay $6 million a year in dues. And for me to be terminated with that kind of money going into it and the lack of assistance and help that we've seen throughout this whole thing. And the only thing that they've done is because our organization has pushed them. And so they do what they should be doing, but then they don't follow through. They make it look like they're doing something right. And it's like the puppet master, right? Look over here while we're doing this other thing behind the curtain. You know, a union's job is wages, benefits, and working conditions. Three things that they're responsible for. So working conditions. We have the worst working conditions I've seen in my 23 years in the fire service. It's only gotten worse. And you can't tell me their job is to be 180 degrees polar opposite of what the city is, not lockstep with them, right? They're, they're lap dogs. That's all it is. And they're playing for political chips, you know? And it's like, no, you know, one of the things that really frustrated me always was that, um, you know, oh, we, the PAC funds, right, that we pay into. Oh, well, you know, we're, we need to get this city council member on board. You know, we need to give them a million dollars. And it's like, wait a minute. We don't work for city council members. We work for the constituents of the city of Los Angeles. And by us giving this council member a million dollars, what about the other 50% of the citizens that don't go along with what this person says? We should be apolitical in that aspect and like, look, we're not putting any money into any of your campaigns, period, end of story. But what we'll do is we'll sit down with you and we'll work through the issues, whoever gets voted in, you know, but... Unfortunately, we always go the Democratic side because, you know, they're pro-union and so on and so forth. But in reality, it should be like, look, stop playing these political games and paying these people, you know, 
so that you can, I mean, the last person that we did for city council president, you know, they paid a ton of money to her to get her in there. We endorsed her, you know, and then what does she do? She turns around and drops this COVID mandate and is pushing for the terminations, you know, it's like, we just paid for her to terminate us. What part of this are you missing? You gave back a raise. I mean, you know, it's, it's just insanity. It's like, stop playing the political game, be there for your members, fight tooth and nail because they're paying your salary. They're paying your overtime. They're paying all those things for you to be there for them. And you guys are just rolling over, you know, it's disgusting. So, you know, unless guys are willing to stand up and step into that position and take over those union positions and really make that change, but it's corrupt. I mean, at every level with those guys. Yeah. Sorry. No, but it, but this is the thing. This is, I paid my union dues my whole career. You did. You know what I mean? So we get to have a voice. We get to say, hey, this is not seeming to do, you know, what we thought it would. You come into the fire service, you're like, oh, this is the this is the movement that created bunker gear and SCBA and they're fighting for our cancer and you know all these things. And then you get in. I I, I was in 14 years. I got out the other end. I'm like, absolutely fucking nothing has changed in 14 years that's a long time 14 years you know that was like almost the birth of the internet to now you know so that's a, <laughs> a lot of things should happen and you yeah. look at for example you know there's one tiny mental health center in the northeast side of the country you're like check we got the suicide problem you know figured out from the iaff it's like no you know we've got so much that we need to do and as you said so many people are putting their hard-earned money in you know, part of their wages so that, you know, we can advocate. It doesn't have to be for me. If I'm blessed with good health, then make it go to all the other people that need the help. But my last place, they had uh, the IAF, and this is before the change of membership. This is Scheidberger still, I think. Um, and uh, it was funny because they called me after I retired from there. And that was ugh, fucking the worst department I ever worked for. But they were going to the Disney area for the for the conference that year. And they were like, oh, yeah, so they, you know, apparently for Scheitberger, we have to have like this level of suite. And I'm like, well, this is like Britney Spears and Blue M&Ms. What the fuck are we talking about? These are union people and we're paying for them to come. And then they were like, oh, can you get John Travolta to do the keynote? Because I had him on my show once. I'm like, uh, no, but this is <laughs> like, you're not, you're not, Michael Jackson isn't coming to your fucking birthday party. These are people that work for us that you pay for that are supposed to be advocating to improve our conditions. And like you said, there is no more basal thing than the work week. You know, yeah. I mean, we stopped putting chimney, uh, kids up chimneys and in factories because we realized they were killing them. Right. Yet we lose so many firefighters every year. Once in a while, it will be an actual, you know, fire or some god awful tragic accident. But most of the time, it's cancer, heart disease, and now double the amount is, is suicide. And that's even the ones we know about. The moment we retire, we cease to be a statistics in the fire service. So all those are getting worse, despite modern medicine getting better, and yet you're beating your chest saying that you're the greatest union in, in, in the country. And I, and I disagree. We should be. And the union philosophy is beautiful, but it's being abused by many, many people. Yeah. And, and so you just listed off all of those you know, things that are you know, uh, cancer and heart disease and then stroke, right? Your top three, well, and suicide now, right? So, but since COVID, right? Turbo cancers through the roof. Sudden death. Guys 
that are perfectly healthy, specimens of health, right? Guys that are fit are literally having strokes, paralyzed, pacemakers put in, right? All of these things. If you go from 2020 until now and look at the increase in cancer, turbo cancers especially, when I say turbo cancer, I mean, oh, not you were diagnosed with, you know, stage one. No, you were diagnosed with stage four terminal pancreatic cancer, nut cancer, you know, whatever it is. We've never seen that in the history of the fire service. It all started from 2020 until now. So there's a common denominator in that. And now you've got the IFF, you know, suing the turnout companies because this is their play to cover their tracks is to say that the PFS is what's causing cancer. Well, we've had PFS in, in the turnouts for how long, right? This isn't something that they just threw in there. And we've never seen rates of cancer, especially stage four cancer, come out of nowhere until now. And it's only going to exponentiate. We're seeing the beginning of the curve. And it's not going to be a gradual slope like this. It's going to go like this, straight up. And for anybody who's a doubting Thomas, I'm telling you firsthand because... I've seen this for the past two and a half years being in this space. And it's disgusting that our unions aren't standing there helping protect against this, you know, and that's something that we're working on right now without the union's help. Um, but, you know, when they're calling it a condition of employment, yet workers comp denies you for any of these claims, you know, um, you're seeing the largest, uh, life insurance providers, I mean, they carry stats. That's their job, right? Is life insurance. So they know what all cause mortality looks like. They know what the death rates are. And when they say that they've seen a 44% rise in one year, and that that's an unsustainable model, guess what? They're going to be putting clauses in that say, if you took an EUA shot, guess what? You're you're out of the loop. You don't get your insurance because it's an experiment and you chose to do it. That's what's happening with medical insurance as well. You know, guys go in, they're like, oh, did you take the shot? Yeah. Sorry, you're not covered into this because you had the option to opt out. Well, no, they told me it was a condition of employment. Yeah, but you could have opted out. You could have gotten a job somewhere else. These are all the things that they're saying and we're seeing. And it's like, where's our union standing and fighting for this? Where's CPF, you know, in their legislature? Uh, doing that, you know, these guys are all lost because they're all bought and paid for. So it's disgusting. And, and that's, we're really going to see a huge spike come in that. Unfortunately, it really saddens me, you know, but I mean, we did our own internal bears report, you know, and, and it's there. <laughs> so yeah, it's, they really need to step to the plate on all levels because there's a lot wrong in the fire service right now, you know, and it's a fantastic career and it's very rewarding because you get to help a lot of people, but really it's, it's killing us at an exponential rate, you know? So. hundred percent. I mean, this is the thing, you know, if, if you went to Afghanistan and you were well-trained and well-equipped, but you got shot by an enemy combatant, that was, you know, the risk that you took going over. But yeah. if you went to Afghanistan and you were doing, let's say, a menial job, for example, and you weren't seeing combat, 
but it was the kind of jo- uh, work environment where 10, 15, 20 years later, there was a high chance that you were going to get heart disease, stroke, or cancer. Well, those are preventable elements. You know, you can't prevent you and I making entry and not realizing that the, you know, the, the um, structure is compromised and there were no signs outside and we went in to rescue someone and then we got collapsed on. That's the chance that we take. But if you're running, you know, ALS call after ALS call after ALS call and just doing your job, but it's the actual work environment that is killing you, then that's a preventable element, you know? So, and I think, you know, this goes hand in hand with the turbo cancers and all that. And we're going to get to the vaccine in a second, but also our men and women were asked to do more with less, more with less, more with less. So it was a double-edged sword because some had a reaction to a vaccine and or some were more susceptible to COVID as well because we were also destroying their human body at mm-hmm. the same time. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there is, you can go and look. I mean, there's plenty of white papers. There's plenty of studies. Um, it's been looked at where, um, you know, sleep deprivation, right? Was still <laughs> it crushes your immune system, right? I mean, it's funny. I used to think that we were Superman and we all looked in shape and everything, you know, and, and whatever. And when I was off sick for, you know, two years, when I came back, I was blown away. I looked at everybody and I was like, what happened to everybody while I was gone? I noticed the inflammation was insane. You know, the redness in the face, just massive swelling, body inflammation all over the place on guys that I used to think, oh, you know, they were, they were fit. Oh, those guys were, no, they're not. They're underlying they're fit, but their immune systems are being crushed. They have no sleep. They eat like shit. You know, um, there's, you know, and, and they start using the coping mechanisms, right? Especially alcohol. And they man, it it was bad. I was like, whoa, this is, I never realized it until I stepped away from it for that period of time, right? Working on my own health. And, you know, then when I came back, everybody was like, whoa, dude, you you look great. You know, you look, you, yeah, well, I feel great. I took care of myself. It took me, you know, a year before I could sleep normal again, you know, Um, sleep patterns, not being jacked up, you know, not waking up and doing whatever, you know, or, or sleeping so hard that when you wake up, you don't even know where you're at, you know, uh, because the body just isn't used to that. Right. So, um, I mean, it causes all kinds of issues with hormone dysregulation and so on and so forth. Right. And think, I mean, all the caffeine, right. I mean, you're already dealing with an adrenaline rush to a certain extent, you know, I mean, after a while it just gets to be same place, same thing, but then, you know, because you're running so many calls and you're up, you know, you're working three days on a one day shift, right? That whole thought process, but yet you're there for five in a row. Um, so you just worked 15 days and you've been doing nothing but pounding coffee, right? Your adrenals are shot. Everything is hammered. And so, you know, your, your system is failing way faster. That's, that's one of the classic things that at least in the LAFD that they used to say is, you had 50 years from the day you were hired until the day you died. So, you know, if you worked 30 years, you know, we'd get a, a death notice that would come through, right? 10 bells. And then you'd read off when the guy was, was hired, when he retired. And on average, you know, you'd have 
18 to 20 years after that. And then he was done. You know, you get some guys every once in a while, you're like, whoa, that guy won the lottery, right? He lived 40 years after that. Well, that's because he only worked 20 years, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, there's a lot that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to some of the the kind of highlights of your career. You mentioned being on 9-11, so I'd love to hear that too. So let's kind of hit some of your career before we we unpack COVID specifically. So firstly, you talked about working on the police side and search and rescue. So what would be some of the career calls during your time in that uniform? Oh, man. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the mountains. <laughs> looking for lost people, um, dangling out of helicopters, uh, swift water, you name it. Um, I mean, it was, that was super rewarding, uh, really got me interested in the EMS aspect of it. Right. Um, cause I mean, you come upon people and they're jacked up, you know, out the forest, uh, you know, austere environment. So that really made it so that I wanted to go to paramedic school, um, so, you know, it, I mean, God, you come across everything. I mean, we, we, you know, you come across in the national forest, especially, and now it's more prevalent out here than it was back then, but, you know, huge marijuana plantations, you know, run by cartels and things like that. Um, so, you know, there we'd make notifications and then annually they'd usually go in and do, you know, raids with the military and DEA, you know, strip those out. Um, but it was just, a, you know, it, to me, it was great working in the mountains because, you know, whether you're on patrol, you're usually by yourself, there's no backup around. Um, so you really, you know, had to think strategically on everything you did, right? It's not like being in a main city where you can just make a call and somebody's there you know, from around the block or whatever, you got a 30 or 40 minute response time sometimes for anybody to be there. So everything you did really had to be calculated, you know, from a traffic stop to, to whatever, you know, it was, you came upon. So, um, so that was good, you know, and I mean, it was great because we traveled all over, you know, we'd go across the state helping out, you know, other agencies, um, all the training, you know, there's training is always good get to go places and do things that most people don't get to see. So yeah, it's just, it's just a different, it was good. Liked it a lot, but I think it, it what was, you know, I really enjoyed the medical aspect, which I never realized. Uh, and that's kind of what lured me over to the fireside. So what about nine 11? Was that between PD and FD? No, I was working for, um, FD at that time, um, I was at fire station 10 in downtown LA. Um, and I was at work the morning of, uh, I remember I was getting off shift and walked into the kitchen. We make relief at six 30 in the morning. So I was down there, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning, having a cup of coffee and waiting for my relief to get there. And you know, the TV's on every, <laughs> every kitchen, <laughs> Everybody knows the TV is always on. Um, so the news was on and I remember seeing that and I was like, what the hell? Well, that's weird. You know, seeing the first plane hit and then, um, you know, all the chatter on that. And then a couple minutes later to see that second plane hit, I'm like, that's 
okay, <laughs> that's an act of terrorism. There's something going down. And within, you know, seconds after that, you know, minute or whatever, pretty much they came across the, the PA system, you know, from our dispatch center, nobody's leaving. You're all recalled. Everybody's staying. Um, and they made a staff, you know, all of, so we run a task force situation where you have a truck and a pump, uh, and then an engine. So, um, so we staffed our pump cause our pump normally just has an engineer on it. So we staffed that fully staffed with four people. We put an extra person on the ambulance at the time. And then, you know, we turned the engine, if we had the ability to, uh, into an ALS resource in, in the station. So, you know, we had extra ALS, we had, you know, two platoons on, um, and it was weird. I'll tell you, because anybody who's been to the city of Los Angeles, you know, or New York, they're just nonstop, you know, it's just people everywhere. Um, and to go out, you know, initially we went out and surveyed, you know, our first in and then just kind of hung out and waited. Um, and the city shut down. It's like everything came to a grinding halt. You could drive through downtown and there wasn't, there wasn't a person on the ground anywhere. You could have shot a cannon down there. The only other time I've seen it like that was in COVID. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it's the eeriest thing in the world to be in a city that big and have not, a, not, nothing <laughs> weird. So, you know, from that, um, I still uh, had been working with the sheriff's department through search and rescue. Um, we were going to be deployed. Um, so I was working on, you know, getting time off through the fire department. Um, and then that fell through. Um, and then my partner at the time, um, Wendy Cummings, she said, Hey, do you still want to go? And I said, yeah. So she had made a phone call. And then next thing you know, I was on a, uh, critical incident stress debriefing team, CSD team. Uh, it was three of us from the fire department and three, uh, two detectives, I think, and one sergeant from LAPD. And the police protective league actually put it together. Um, and so we went out there. We were two days later, you know, we were the first plane off the ground um, in LA and we flew out there uh, and landed. And that was weird, man. You know, we had all these coppers show up from New York, you know, at the airport, grabbed our, our gear and everything threw us in squad cars and they were hauling ass back to the city. <laughs> Emergency. I mean, and those guys, uh, a whole nother ball of wax, man. I mean, they're driving <laughs> on the sidewalk, they're driving, pushing cars off the road. I'm like, what the hell's going on, man? You'd think the president of the United States was here. So that was a trip. Um, you know, so we got back, uh, into the city, uh, and then hooked up with the, uh, sergeant's union. Um, and then they basically kind of, they walked, they took, they have, have you been downtown yet? No. So they got us some badges and took us downtown. And we walked through ground zero. Ooh, man, that was something else. I mean, they had just put a fence up. 
literally a fence went up. And so, you know, it was, I don't know, it was 16 square blocks. I think it was around that. Um, I mean, it was undescribable. There's no words to, it, it looked like a war zone, you know, in the Middle East, like Lebanon or, I mean, it was just shit everywhere. Buildings crushed and collapsed and it was really just you walk through there so surreal and you're like fuck is this the united states of america what in the hell just happened here you know so you really there's a lot to take in um and back then you know we didn't have smartphones we didn't have flip phones <laughs> you had a little piece of shit cell phone um maybe it was a flip phone but no cameras you know and they're like no no pictures you can't take any pictures if they see you taking pictures they'll kick you out and i'm like that's weird. Why in the fuck can't we take pictures? You know, it's not like, so anyway, I had a little 110 camera. You remember those? I think so. The long... little rectangular one. Yeah. The disposable camera oblong or whatever. Yeah. And so I was walking along and snapping photos when nobody's looking. I'm like, this is fucking unreal. This is history, you know? So anyway, we walked around and, and the guy's like, Hey, I'm going to take you over to, the guy who's running this here at ground zero. So he took us over there and we started talking to him and uh, his name was Chris Coslow. Um, and it turns out he was retired LAPD. He worked Devonshire division for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that. And now he was working for the DOJ. And so we started talking to him and he was like, well, what are you guys doing? You know, like, well, we came down here as a part of the CISD team, but nobody wants to talk, you know, nobody, New York. I mean, <laughs> that wasn't even a, a thing, you know, I mean, they didn't even believe in the ICS system back then. I mean, that wasn't even, there was no ICS system in place. It, it was a mess, man. So he's like, well, you know, you can, you want to work for me? And I was like, yeah, what do you need? Well, I got to go, you know, to this meeting right now, but I need, they had barges coming across from Jersey, um, full of equipment and all this stuff. And he's like, I have no idea where these things are coming from. I don't know what equipment's on there. I need to know what this place looks like. You know, I said, okay, cool. Well, I need a lot of resources. You know, I need maps. I need, if you have satellite imagery, you know, whatever you have. So he tasked me with, you know, some guys from Seaburn and, and, um, PD, uh, the national guard. I mean, all he's like, whatever you need, ask these guys and they'll get it for you. Okay. He says, but I want to plan when I come back of how we can take this city back over because we have, you know, there was all these civilians inside of there because that was a, a political football, right? So one thing led to another anyway, gridded out the city, figured out where resources were coming from, so on and so forth. And then that just started the ball rolling and it just escalated into holy shit or rebuilding the city. It's a long story, but, and there's a lot of pieces to it, but man, it was, it was something else. I mean, I would have never thought, you know, just happenstance met this guy hooked up and one thing led to another. And there it is. It was, gave me a lot of experience. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, and I was used to running operations through, you know, 
the sheriff's department. So that was really good, you know, on logistics and stuff like that. And then when we came back, it was interesting. We put together, you know, PowerPoint on what we saw, lessons learned, things to consider, you know, for out here. And we gave that to the sheriff's department, you know, the sheriff and all of his top command staff. We gave that to LAPD police chief and his command staff. And then we attempted to give it to the LAFD and they just farted at me and like, no, thanks. Yeah, we're good. We don't need any of that information. I just what? Yeah. what? Okay. It's weird. Another weird thing in, in the LAFD, but whatever. When you look so back now, what do you think that came from? It seems like so often it's it's egos. Like I've obviously tried to bring solutions to places I've worked, and usually it's it's a an ego of an individual ultimately is the hurdle. Yeah, um, back then, especially if you weren't a chief, you literally had no say so. Um, you know, and so so that was really interesting. You know, because I wasn't; I was just a firefighter, paramedic. You know, dumb dumb fireman, um, but. I had the firsthand experience working, you know, for the main guy at ground zero. There's a lot of Intel, a lot of information that, you know, lessons learned on what to look at things you'd never consider in a situation like that. Right. Um, that we came across that we had to deal with, you know, and as a city, you would think your, uh, EOC or whatever, you know, your DOC would want to know that information to be able to better, you know, utilize that in, in some kind of disaster scenario. Right. So, yeah. Well, especially when you have terrorism, but you also have earthquakes, which could create the same kind of scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those hit out of nowhere <laughs> and literally it, it would look the same. You know, I mean, if we had a 8.0 or higher, it's no problem. You drop these buildings. So yeah. So if, if you could impart to everyone listening now, some of those takeaways that you were trying to educate your own people with, you know, a lot of us have, you know, I, I spent a lot of my time in Anaheim and the Orlando area. So again, still pretty urban, maybe not the, the high rise landscape that you guys have in New York, but, but, you know, still a lot of similar target hazards. So what would be the takeaways for the average person listening now? Well, comms are number one, right? You, you definitely, I mean, without comms, uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's on the job or in your marriage, right? Um, everything falls apart without that. So you need to really have some sort of communication system in place and a backup um, for any type of scenario like that. That would probably be the number one thing. Then, you know, moving forward, I mean, there's so many different factors that go into an operation like that. You know, I mean, initially you're looking at the the search and rescue aspect of it, right? Um, and then, you know, you're dealing with the recovery aspect of it, right? If there's bodies, I mean, there really wasn't much recovery um, going on at that time, very little to none. Um, so, I mean, you really need somebody managing that aspect of it, right? And then you need somebody... <clears throat> There's still search and rescue on another level, too, because you have all these other buildings around that area as well, right? So all of those buildings need to be cleared um, to make sure that, you know, somebody didn't get trampled, somebody didn't fall, somebody didn't have a heart attack, right? Somebody who was in a wheelchair who couldn't get out, you know, I mean, you're talking about 30 to, I mean, trade centers were 110 stories. So you got a lot of buildings that are very tall. There's a lot of landscape to cover. 
you have that whole situation to deal with um, because there's still, it, it's no different like a USAR operation, right? You know, you got to go through and mark your your doors and your buildings to make sure that those are cleared. Well, this is the same thing floor by floor, but in hundreds of buildings. So, I mean, it's a monumental task on that aspect. Um, you know, then, then you're dealing, I mean, you're dealing with all the different agencies. So water and power, gas, um, you know, um, one of the big things that was really a, a good takeaway was sanitation, you know, and everything in New York is unionized. Um, so there was a lot of infighting with that. Um, that's, that's our job. We're in charge of that. You know, yeah, you are, but we have to come together and there's a main center of command and then all information disseminates down from that on what you guys, you guys just can't go out there and willy nilly be doing everything. Right. It all has to come together from one central command post. But what was interesting, one of the big things as well was because what happens when sanitation stops, right? Trash pickup. Well, Manhattan's on an island. We got rats, right? You got a lot of rats in Manhattan. Um, and so what do rats carry? Disease, right? So now you're dealing with issues of disease spread, contagions, things like that. So um, about every 10 floors, I think it was in those high-rise buildings, depending on the size of them, they had a cafeteria. That's full of food. There's no power. There's no cooling. There's no electricity. Now that food's sitting there rotting. And now you've got that pest problem running up into those facilities, um, scavenging. So, you know, getting people into those zones to clear that stuff out is super crucial. Um, understanding what's in your buildings as well and having, you know, I mean, you know, we have a 704 placard on a lot of buildings, right? Um, but it, it might tell you what's in there, but not the quantities and stuff, you know? And so making sure that you're not sending people in. That was another thing too, was there was no uh, respirators. And that was one of the big things. I'm like, we need these people to be wearing, you know, not an N95. Uh, I mean, there wasn't even that, but, you know, legit 3M particle uh, canisters and stuff. Um Food was being set up outside. You know, you had people coming with truckloads of food to help the first responders, right? And I mean, you got McDonald's and all these other places that are out there and there's tables set up everywhere. And this food's just laying all over. There's no climate control on it. There's no nothing on it. And now you've got all this debris, ash, all of this stuff falling on this and guys are just eating it, not thinking of the concept of, you know, what's in this, asbestos, heavy metals, you know, radiation, uh, all, all kinds of stuff. I mean, we know what was there. Um, so all of those things are, need to be considerations, right? You need to control all those environments and none of that was controlled there, you know? And is that the reason why people got sick? Well, yeah, probably a lot of it, you know? I mean, you're ingesting those toxins on food. Um, you're breathing it in, you're inhaling it, you know? And so, you know, we got the mask for guys, but you know, it was hot and guys didn't want to wear them and so, yeah, just a, a lot of issues. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> we can go on for days. <laughs> yeah, no, but thank you though. Cause I mean, this, this is a way for people, whether they're in, you know, rural New Zealand somewhere or in the city itself to actually learn. I think this is what's so great about these, 
these conversations is, you know, the podcast medium allows everyone around the world to listen. If they got Wi-Fi connection, they happen to hit play on this episode, they're going to learn some things. And when you talked about the food, whether it was actually the disease side within the buildings or serving it on the streets, I mean, it's all coming from good intentions, but these aren't things that you think about. I wouldn't think about it. So I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's the biggest thing is like, right. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And, and we really have to, in the emergency management space, uh, disasters management, um, or even just as a first responder, not in a management position, you need to look at those things and think about what is it that I'm doing and what are the potential outcomes for that, right? I mean, I'm not talking about going into a burning building or whatever. We know what those are and we weigh those consequences, right? We look at smoke conditions. We look at, you know, is it, you know, blowing through the roof? You know, is it already venting? Is it is part of the building, you know, collapse? What We make all of those judgments, right? And, and we make our assessment to go in. We look for those danger signs. But in bigger things like this, we really have to look at the bigger picture as well, right? Long-term outcomes and what are the consequences of our decisions in making this right so just you know absolutely well that was 9-11 so prior to the pandemic now you're wearing a fire uniform what again was some of the career calls in your career well i remember coming back from 9-11 um you know and then we had the whole uh we had the whole issue with anthrax, um, you know, then I was at a hazmat task force, you know, I remember having, we, I mean, we were anthrax, that was a big thing constantly. Right. So, uh, oh my God, everywhere. So we had to deal with that. Um, you know, and, uh, so that was kind of interesting. Um, then fast forward again and I went, uh, Worked in arson, counterterrorism, um, you know, lots of training in that. It was great. You know, I've been to bomb school. I've been to homicide school. I've done, done a, the, my resume is pretty extensive. Um, so it was great getting to learn, you know, all of these different things and being able to put all these pieces together. Um, then in, God, what year? I'm trying to think of what year it was now. <laughs> the years... <laughs> forget some of those somewhere around 2011 or 12 um when i was there in arson um new year's eve i made an arrest for a gentleman uh who started if i remember correctly i think it was five fires and young kid 18 years old um 19 years old or whatever uh went on a drinking bender got pissed off, walked through the city, starting fires. One of the fires was we have these apartment complexes, you know, this was like a three-story garden style apartment and the parking, it was a carport and it went down underneath the ground level units. So they were open facing the street, not closed with the garage door, um, but they were subterranean. So this kid, bought a uh fire starter like a you know a duraflame log type of thing and put it underneath one of the uh front front end driver's end if i remember right uh, of the car 
and lit it. Basically, the car caught on fire, caught the cabinets on fire above it, all the other cars, and then it went up into the apartments. And this is like two o'clock in the morning. So, you know, you've got people asleep, so on and so forth. Luckily, no one died, um, but ended up catching him, got him to confess, and, you know, he went to jail. So I went home, you know, I had been on for multiple days, had to write the report to go to the DA, you know, so that he could be arraigned. You got 48 hours to do that. And then, you know, I shut my phone off because I was wiped out. Wake up the next, my, my wife wakes me up and she's like, hey, your phone's blowing up. You need to answer. So I answer it. And they're like, you got to come back to work. We had somebody freaking go out and light, you know, 30 fires last night. And they're matching the MO of your fire. <laughs> what? You know, you're asleep, groggy. Okay, great. So I drive back to work. And I spent the next couple of days there. Um, and it turned out he was, uh, I cannot remember this guy's name. But he was the largest serial arsonist in the history of Los Angeles. He lit over 100, 100 110 fires, I think, in two nights it was. Um, it's pretty wild chasing this guy down. You know, we thought originally one of the initial things was that it was his buddies, the guy that I arrested, his buddies went and set the same type of fire. Um, you know, to say, look, it wasn't this guy who did this. Um, it was someone else so that they could get him out of jail. Well, you know, write search warrants, do all that stuff. Long story short, it turns out the guy lived behind the arsonist, lived behind where he set that fire in that apartment complex. And that gave him the idea. And it turned out that he was in court the day before his mom was being deported for, I believe it was prostitution. Um, and he got pissed, walked out of the court and said, I'm going to burn the fucking city down. Paraphrasing, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And then that night he started burning the city down. And, you know, like I said, lit 110 fires or something. So, I mean, that's a lot of fires to be chasing around the city, you know, takes a lot of units. <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of accelerant too. Was he carrying like a the gas truck behind him or something? <laughs> no, man, literally he was using those fire logs, those fire starters, um, and just strategically placing them underneath the car, you know, and it, they'd get hot enough and it would catch and, you know, and then you got the magnesium usually in that area of the car right there that and then that gets superheated and I, it was wild it was one wild ride that's for sure so well that apartment fire when i was at anaheim i remember this clearly i was on an engine and we got banged out to a car fire and we were like all right and then we you know we always took it seriously it was a good department they they trained us well so we were all bunkered up but actually when we got there it was not subterranean but the same exact layout it was actually I think there was four, four or five cars in a carport, and then it was a, I think it was a one story. So above that was then a wood frame apartment complex. You got all these fire, and all every single car was fully involved. You got a raging fire, then you've got you know apartments. I think it was either one or two floors. Yeah, yeah, and it's just terrifying because you've got an absolute you know inferno below, 
you've only got wood steps for these people to to escape and like you said if they're asleep they're literally going to cook to death above you so i mean that layout is, is always terrifying to me knowing especially now with these uh, electric cars and how they spontaneously combust oh, that yeah. you could lose an entire you know row of families without them even ever waking up yeah yeah you know and yeah absolutely it's <laughs> you could run all the scenarios all day long but yeah that's one of the worst ways you know um, i think those are a horrible design period you know so. absolutely so any other career calls prior to 2020 and we'll get into the the, the event oh. that shut down the world yeah uh, <laughs> um you know i mean we've had train derailments you know uh all kinds of stuff. I, those are those are some pretty good ones, though. I think you know. I don't know. It just all kind of blurs together. You know, I, I, one of the things that always blows me away is, and is, you know, you go out or whatever, and your your friends who are not in the fire service or in a first responder are like, "Tell me about the worst call you ever had. Tell me about the gnarliest call." And it's like, you want me to relive one of the worst things I've ever seen for your enjoyment. And that's not where I'm going with you, but that popped into my head, you know, as like, unless you've been there, it doesn't matter what I tell you, you're never going to grasp the concept or the reality of how shitty that was, you know? And what we see too is, is we go and we deal with it, right? We shut it off while we're there because we have to function. Right. And, and, and there are those calls that catch you off guard. You're like, whoa, but you still right into work mode, right? It's not until afterwards, you know, that either A, you try and process it or B, you just box it up and put it away and party on Garth, you know, whatever. <laughs> oh, that was a sick call, bro. Yeah, it was a sick call. So yeah, you know, I don't know. I just... It's crazy when you think about how many calls you run in that length of a career, you know, in, in a big city. I mean, when when I was put off for COVID, I, you know, because I came back from being sick, um, my doctor wouldn't let me go in the field anymore. Um, I couldn't go into an IDLH because of uh, immune issues, autoimmune issues and stuff. And so um, I went to our dispatch center um, and we have our own. We, we, our dispatchers are sworn members. Um, it's a place to go if you've been broken, um, you know, or you want to be a dispatcher for a couple of years. It's great because it gives you the ability to see everything from all sides. Um, and in reality, like on structure fires and stuff, we run those um, for the chief, you know, we're an extra set of ears. We're listening to everything. We're prompting if they miss something, you know, if they need resources, we're telling them, you know, you got 15 minutes on your instant clock, whatever it is. There's a lot of things happening behind the scenes that people don't grasp if you've never been in that position. Um, so I think, you know, that was a great experience as well. Um, you know, just cause you're looking at it from a different lens. Um, so, yeah. But there's a lot of them and us when it comes to dispatch and whoever's on the call, you know, and then we know we've all, we all know exactly, you know, what that means that we've been, we've experienced it, but 
you know, I remember, for example, going on a, a hemorrhage once and we got there and it was, there was a dead guy with a gun next to him. He was hemorrhaging, but it was a, you know, ultimately a self-inflicted gun wound, gunshot wound, but you know, very different call once you come through, but all the dispatcher has is what they are told by whoever picks up the phone. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've had a few dispatchers on here. One of the one that really stands out though was Beth Bowersox. She was a dispatcher. She was from paradise and she was on, on call mm-hmm. that day during the paradise fire. So yep. these poor men and women, firstly, they, you know, they, they work shift work like us, but they don't get to have a, a physical exertion to offload the stress. They sit in a chair in the dark for 12 hours at a time, maybe never seeing the sun, depending on their shifts, and then have to have this stress with no way of offloading it. But to hear families screaming, saying, please help me right before they're burned over by a wildfire. I mean, it's brutal. So I think it's it's really interesting, and I'd love to hear your kind of your take on on the the perspective that you did get when you hear voices from dispatch, because it's so easy to just blame them for stuff and think that they're vindictive or whatever. And sometimes they are; they're having a bad day too. Let's be honest. But you know, most of the time, it's a it's a team effort. But we're so disconnected; it's just simply a voice on a radio. But there's often a lot of animosity between the two. Yeah, I remember. I mean, for me, being in the field, you know, it was always. Um... I never, you know, I'd just go to the address. I'd look at the call and be like, yeah, like you said, hemorrhage. Okay, great, whatever. And when I got there, I would assess the situation and be like, how do they get this? You know, MFing them the whole time. You know? Then you get down there and you're like, yeah. <laughs> okay, now I get it. Um, but, you know, and unfortunately, like, I don't know whether it's fortunate or unfortunate, you know, guys still always do the same thing. You have the control, you have the power. Well, no, you don't because, you know, there's three captains sitting up on a bridge. I mean, our, our dispatch center looks like NASA control center. It's unreal. I mean, each dispatcher has six computer screens in front of him. Um, He's got a 10 key. He's got one, two, three or four keyboards um he's got a headset on whether he's taking calls or he's dispatching um and and you got you know all all the stuff going on right um and you're trying to garner information from somebody who whether it's on the other end that they're you know the end of the world.com truly or you know their toilets flooding or they stub their toe you know or a guy trapped in an elevator and he's MFing you, you know, with, with a mental health issue and a substance abuse issue going on at the same time. Right. So, I mean, it, it's so wide and varied and, and our hands truly as a dispatcher, you're very tied because at least with LA city, you know, they, they monitor all your keystrokes. Um, so everything you type in, um, all the calls are recorded. Uh, they have a QI, you know, system that they go back and they review all the calls. Every single cardiac arrest is critiqued and gone over as well um, because the head doctor, you know, for the, the city reviews all of those to see how we can get better, you know, outcomes and so on and so forth. And so there's so many factors and you're under a microscope and you do something wrong or what they feel is wrong or you didn't dispatch appropriately, you know, they, they come after you, um, you get put into the system and, and 
they'll pull you in for remediation. And if you don't, you know, get better or whatever, you continue to have issues, then they boot you out of there. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's normal, right? There has to be checks and balances, but for the guys in the field, they don't grasp the concept that everything you do is, it's not like being in the field where, you know, if you took your ax to the door before you turned the doorknob and checked it, right. And it's not the end of the world. The building was burning down. You just took, the harder way, right? Or whatever it is, there's, you're not scrutinized like that to, to that extent. Um, here they really have the, you know, because a captain has, you know, four guys that he's in charge of, right? Including himself. Um, and there's a lot going on here. You know, everything's recorded, everything's key logged, so on and so forth. So you're really under that scrutiny. And if, if you, and guys don't want to get hammered. You know, it's just easier. Follow the script or, you know, send, press send, get somebody there. At least you got somebody there. So, um, yeah. Well, while we're on the dispatch conversation, we were talking about the workload. One of the most amazing innovations that I've seen, and I would love to get a company on here as a sponsor so we can really really share this message. But um, I think that a lot of them are still kind of grassroots operations. But the nine one one telehealth immersion now. So you know the the obviously the Omega course, but then the Alpha and maybe even some of the Bravo, depending. You know that's a, a large portion of what we run on. You know the the real real true nine one one emergencies. I think most of us would agree are probably a quarter of the calls that we get. The rest are you know a, a number of things from loneliness to drug seeking and you know and just just mania in general. And so you call 911 and the dispatcher immediately figures out, okay, what level is this? All right, we're, we're at a very low level. Um, you know, well, we've got two options for you. We can send out, you know, a rescue paramedics to your house, or we can get you into a Zoom call, you know, video conference with an ER physician. Which one would you prefer? Oh, well, yeah, I'll talk to a doctor. They then, you know, you tag them off. And obviously they always have the ability to come back to you if they deem that they want to go after all. But now they talk to the doctor and that tummy ache or let me use a better example. You know, the the kid with the 102 fever that's thrown up once, but it's a new parent and they're terrified they're going to die of dehydration, you know, or the rolled ankle or uh, my, my, you know, blood pressure meds have expired or whatever it is. They're able to mitigate that. And they probably trust that person as much, if not more than than a paramedic. So then you've eliminated a bed being taken up in an ER, you stop that patient, you know, being charged thousands of dollars by going into that ER, and you've given the crew one less call to run. So it's like a win, win, win. And it doesn't even cost the fire department anything because this company bills the health insurance, uh, you know, a much smaller bill than an ER visit would be. So that to me is an incredible idea, but, and it's one good thing that came out of COVID because they cut a lot of the red tape around telemedicine. So I would love to see that become, you know, a, a thing in all 911 is if it's not emergency, then send it to a trained professional who can mitigate that virtually. And so we're not running our people into the ground. Yeah, we we started that. Well, I don't I don't say it. we started it. I know there's companies doing it, but during COVID, LA City actually implemented telehealth um you know and we hired pas um to come in you know give them abbreviated course and then basically uh they trained the dispatchers that if you had 
a certain level call, right? And it met this criteria, then you, you if they were working that day, again, you know, they get days off. <laughs> we're not in that space. So, um, but the idea was there definitely to send um, that over to um, to them, you know, to get to get that handled. Um, and then if they couldn't get it handled on their end, then they would end up sending it back to us and we would dispatch out, you know, a BLS resource or whatever to handle that. Um, I think in theory, it's good. Um, I don't necessarily know that our protocol was set up correct, but I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, you know, it's better than continuing to send resources you know, and then they've got mental health fans and all kinds of things. But again, then we've seen issues with that. So I don't know. There's, there's a lot there. Yeah. I think like you said, the potential is there. Absolutely. But we need, we need the right people to create it the right way so that we're not throwing it all together at the beginning of a national emergency. Yeah, absolutely. It has to start somewhere, you know? Um, so if that's the case, then, you know, start doing something, see what doesn't work and, and start tweaking the system. Right. Um, but again, then you get into the space where, you know, your dispatchers don't want to send someone over to telehealth. Let's just send an 800. <laughs> Cause I don't want to lose my job. You know, I don't know. There's all of this, this round Robin that goes through, you know, everybody's like protective of their space, but okay, great. Guys are complaining in the field. They're getting hammered. Why are you sending on this? Here's a person right here to help. So send them, send them to that. I agree hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of that then, so I had uh Bo Porter on one of your LA FD brothers, uh -huh. um, amazing conversation, but it was great because he talked about in his first year where he worked, they did see, you know, a lot of the, the deaths and, and issues when it came to COVID, when it first hit. Um, and this is an important part of the conversation. There's some people in, you know, rural, wherever that saw zero. You know, this is why I think there's a bit of to and froing when when it comes to the individual experience. Through your lens in the station where you were assigned, walk me through the beginning of the pandemic. So when uh, when all this happened, you know, with COVID and so on and so forth, um, I was actually in dispatch. Um, I was a dispatcher. Um, well, actually, when COVID started, I had actually had just come back to work September of 19. Um, so then January 20 is when that all started. Um, and I was working in our fire communications division, dealing with radios and comms and stuff like that, waiting to go into our dispatch center. So anyway, fast forward uh, through that, um, you know, basically they, the city, well, let's see, when did, what is it, Operation Warp Speed? <laughs> they offered, you know, the shots to the elderly and first responders first, right? So I think that was about, um, what was that, 2020, uh, December sometime, I think is when they first started offering those. Um, and and me, the way my brain operates, you know, I, I look at a lot of different factors. Um, I did my research. Um and I knew that that wasn't something that I was comfortable with. Um, so 
fast forward into 2021, um, we, uh, in August, you know, we had heard, but prior to August, we had heard rumblings that, you know, they were going to start mandating this shot. And I'm like, wait a minute, we've had a choice this whole time. Now, while all of a sudden is this being mandated, something's not right here. You know, we don't, we don't force people to take medical treatment against their will. Um, so me and a buddy um, started talking about what we would do if that came into effect. And we kind of laid out a plan. Um, and then it happened. <laughs> they had a union meeting. Um, and in that union meeting, they said that, you know, there's nothing that they could do that, you know, the city, you know, we've been in, in negotiations with the city, meet and confer, and, uh, you know, we're still at the table. And so that went back and forth. And I basically, you know, I mean, I sat there throughout the whole time I came with like eight pages of notes and um, <laughs> all the stats and things that I was going to talk about and trying to figure out when I was going to speak and what I was going to say. And I was just listening to everybody. And man, the one thing that really stood out to me was the amount of fear in the room. You know, guys were like, you know, I have a family, I've got kids I got to take care of, you know, blah, 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 all the, all, all the main things. Right. And they're like, I can't afford not to take this. I have to do, you know, all of these things going around. And I'm like, wow, this is horrible. There's literally nobody knows what to do. And it was bizarre, man. So I, I finally got to the point where I'm like, I, I can't handle this anymore. It's terrifying. So I, I stood up and just started talking and uh, I never touched those notes. They, they never came into play. And <laughs> I, I, I felt like, I don't know, like it, this information came from another source, like divinely inspired. Um, and really, you know, focusing on the fact that everyone was terrified. They didn't know what to do. It's like nobody wanted to step up and lead. Nobody wanted to be that guy. Nobody really, th there's no roadmap for this. Nobody seen anything like this before, right? Um, so I think from that standpoint, the fear was just tremendous. How do you, this is what we do is we solve problems, right? And now we don't know what to do and we're the providers and I can't step out of that role. So I'm going to do whatever it takes, right? To, to be in that. And that's what I saw. And so I basically just stood up and talked to the union, the union president, everybody. And I was like, look, this is, there's more at stake here. You know? Yeah. Our privacy is being violated. Our, our body autonomy, you know, this, these are working conditions. This, we have contracts. There's a lot of things in play here. I said, but in reality, I was born free, right? I'm a sovereign individual, human being, and my rights are given to me at birth by God. And I have the right to protect myself. It gives me discernment, free will to do the things that I think that are right for me. And this is not right. This is not okay for the city, the union, 
the federal government, anyone to be telling me what it is I have to put into my body. Um, and, and the thing that people didn't grasp the concept, you know, initially, I think, is that we're given those rights by God at birth. And those rights are enshrined, you know, there's documents, the founding documents, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Those limit the powers of the government, and it protects our sovereign right to make decisions for ourselves, right? We elect these officials to govern, not rule us. And those documents protect those God-given rights. And so, you know, I basically just said, look, this is the line in the sand that I'm not willing to step over and cross. You're not going to force me. And if it means that this has to go to the end and the city decides that they're going to terminate me over this, then, then that's what will be because I will not capitulate to this bullshit. This is wrong on so many levels and I'm not going to kiss a ring and be held a slave, you know, um, over a paycheck. And then, you know, afterwards I was like, Whoa, what, <laughs> what was that all about? You know, I know what it was about, but I think it was really kind of just like, Hmm, people need to understand that there's more here. And so, you know, I said, look, I'm willing to fight this. I don't know how or what, but anybody who wants to, I'm, you know, what I see in this room is everybody feels like they're on an Island, right? That they're a lone wolf, that there's nobody there for them. And in reality, the union's sitting there giving lip service, you know, like this, but they proved that they didn't do anything throughout this. Um, and so after that, you know, I had a conversation with my buddy. I said, well, this is how it went <laughs> and we need to do something. And, you know, so we had some telegram channels and we had some other stuff where we were communicating with people in the department and, you know, the members who, who weren't down with this. And then we put it out there. Hey, we're, we're going to start this. We're going to do something, anybody who wants to be involved. And so then we got um, eight other people that reached out uh, and we basically said, okay, what do we need to do? So we created a 501c3. Um, we, you know, we have, that was our board of directors um, and we created firefighters for freedom. And then we found an attorney, um, you know, and we got uh, attorneys on board um we initially had one attorney and then that led into you know three other attorneys one which was you know uh kennedy um and we just started pushing back um you know we started an instagram channel and then that blew up um, as our social media i mean you know over fifty thousand people on that um and we really held the city to task you know we really pushed asked questions pointed out the hypocrisy just really started laying down truth uh, you know and trying to expose the lies and then so you know so all of that was happening and you know i was still working uh and so you know that was mr toad's wild ride holy mackerel fast and furious. I mean, you know, on days that I wasn't at work, it was 16 hour days. I mean, I'd get 
I don't even, I mean, I'd be on the phone all day long and, you know, five, six, 700 texts a day, at least, you know, and you're just, it's just nonstop trying to help people through that process on, you know, what to do, what their rights were. Um, you know, here in California, we have the firefighter bill of rights. Um, you know, we have Skelly, which is a Supreme court ruling. Um, it says you have a property right to your job. Um, you know, again, F four firefighter bill of rights. That's, <clears throat> that's your due process that took 20 years to get put into place. Um, so there was a lot of things that were happening, you know, and, and things that they were doing. And, you know, then we filed suit on, uh, September 17th, which actually turns out to be the day that, uh, the constitution was signed, ratified. Um, and then we started down that process of dealing with, you know, the court system. Um, so originally the city put the mandate into place and said, um, you know, you had until October 20th of 21 to be in compliance or you would be, uh, put off duty disciplinary action, uh, pending termination. And so then we held a small rally. Then we held a big rally, uh, on the day of, I think it was, God, I have to go back and look of that on the 20th of October, um, with 10,000 people, um, you know, we had a lot of big speakers, you know, uh, America's frontline doctors, and, you know, Alex Zach and, just a lot of people came out and spoke at that rally, um, in support of freedom and, and, you know, medical freedom, body autonomy, privacy rights, all of that stuff. And that was really the beginning of, of, you know, all of that. We pushed really hard. And so we were supposed to be terminated, you know, put off on the 20th and then the 20th came and went and that didn't happen. Um, and one of the reasons they said was, you know, because you're an imminent threat to the public and the workforce. Well, then they extended that date out to December 18th of 2021. And it's like, wait a minute, if we're an imminent threat to the public and the workforce, why am I still at work? Why am I still working? You know, um, no answers. So we continued through the court system. Um, and we got a radical judge who was very biased um, throughout the whole process. Um, he denied us at every step of the way and then dismissed our case um, on a demure, which you can't do. Um, basically stated that we had no legal standing. So, which is hilarious because in the state of California, you know, legal standing is almost, I mean, if you have a pulse rate and you can breathe, you have legal standing. Um, but we had plenty of legal standing. So anyway, our case got kicked out. Um, and then we went to the appellate court uh, in April of this year. Um, and we won in the appellate court. So it had to go back to the superior court. And then we had a 
hearing, I think it was December 1st or first week in December um, of this year in front of the judge. She heard it and basically set a trial date for uh, February of 2025. So <laughs> just around the corner, you know. <laughs> um, so that's where that, you know, legal case is sitting right now. Um, you know, the city says that they want to come to the table before that happens, but, you know, we'll see what, what they want to do with that. You know, we sued on, on, uh, constitutional rights on that, but based on the California constitution, because it's much stronger, uh, and has better protection rights. Article one, section one of the California constitution gives you, you know, medical freedom, body autonomy, genetic uh privacy rights a lot of things like that and so it's it's way stronger than than at the federal level um under those protections and we wanted to show that you know that these mandates are unconstitutional you know they, they can't step into this space and force you to take something you know against your will and just goes against every principle that this country was founded on so so that's where we stand in the courts. And then, you know, throughout that process, um, <clears throat> uh, December 1st of 2021, um, I got off shift. And about 15 minutes after I got off shift, I received an email that said, uh, you've been placed off duty, leave no pay pending disciplinary action. And so I, I stayed off of work for pretty much two years, um, no pay, um, which is illegal in the state of California. Um, and then I had my board of rights that started in September of 23. Um, and then on November 27th of, uh, 23, they came down with their decision and found me guilty of violating a condition of employment <laughs> and terminated me. So, that's where I sit, happily retired uh, right now, um, and still continuing to fight. Um, yeah, so <laughs> there's a lot in the, inside of that to unpack, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, but I I want to I want to kind of just recap the way I viewed the pandemic, and then and then we'll we'll get into you know your term happily retired because I know there's two oxymorons there. <laughs> um, firstly. When I think almost everyone that's come on here, no matter what leaning they have, everyone was like, February 2020, we were like, oh shit, what is this? Everyone took it seriously. But then as the months, you know, the weeks and ultimately months went on, you know, you had all these different um, you know, layers of leadership. And I would say I'm not a huge fan overall, but I have to say that Ron DeSantis, the way he handled that, obviously his team it was just so measured. It was like, all right, everyone shut down. All right. Now we're going to see what's, Oh, the numbers aren't actually anywhere near as bad as we thought. All right. You know, restaurants, you know, or gyms or whatever. And it wasn't too long, for example, before our gyms were open again. And so I was very impressed. Like I'm, I don't lean either way. I just, you know, want good leaders, you know, whatever shape, color, whatever they are. 
Um, and I saw it, it was very, very well done. And, you know, it wasn't too long before most of us were going around. And you know, then you had the choice. Do you want to get a vaccine? Do you want to wear a mask? And I got vaccinated ultimately, not because of any fear of myself and my own health or the spreading side, because me being in medicine for a long time, a lot of the things we were being told as we got into those months, like that doesn't line up with fucking everything I've been taught as a paramedic and in, you know, um, exercise physiology in, in, in UF and all these medical classes that I've done, there was a lot of, you know, oh, trust the science, like, but this isn't the science that you've been teaching us for decades. So that's where, that's what stuck with me. But I needed to get vaccinated to travel and I was going to visit my grandmother who was turning 105. So for me, I was like, I will take that risk because I want to protect her. So that was my personal choice. It wasn't, you know, an avert fear of the vaccine, but I certainly wasn't pro-vaccine. I would not have had it had I not needed to travel and finally see my family after a couple of years. So that was my own choice and I had it done. But what I observed through the whole two years, and I still revisit the pandemic for this very reason, is if it was about health and the wellness of the population, then during those two years, we would start seeing real food put back in schools, soda machines being removed from schools, physical education and sports programs being bolstered, you know, mental health programs being bolstered, downtown areas being pedestrianized, cycle paths being made. You know what I mean? And, and none of that happened. And even in LA, if you really want to talk about a lesson missed, the, the smog went away. I lived in Burbank for like a year and a half. So, you know, I know. Yeah. Smog. He, he knows what smog is. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, wow, you know, dolphins going into the, you know, was it the Venice Canal, I think it was, um, you know, so many lessons. And then it was only a couple months. People were like, yeah, fuck that. And now all of a sudden there's rubber gloves and masks everywhere you look, you know, fuck the environment, you know? So it was, there was some powerful lessons and you had a captive audience. So what really smacked firstly, just simply on the wellness message was, if we were actually talking about wellness, then we're going to acknowledge the fact that a huge percentage of the people that were losing are dying because of underlying health conditions. 70% of our country is obese or overweight. We consume 75% of the world's opiates. You know what I mean? We have a health crisis. So all COVID was, and say all, what COVID was for most people was the final nail in the coffin. And we lost a lot of first responders because of what we talked about earlier in this conversation. Shift work makes us so immunocompromised. Now, I had a friend of mine who's a Texas ER physician, and he was observing that for some people that were ill, it seemed like the vaccine was, was uh, mitigating the symptoms to the point where someone didn't die, but they survived their COVID uh, infection. So there was an application through his eyes. And so that's what I try to do is bring all the different pieces of the puzzle so we can have a nuanced overall look at this conversation. But now fast forward a little bit further, and we're watching the efficacy of this vaccine that we're being told about go from 100% to 70%. And now, ultimately, it's no different than you know, a placebo. You know, So, okay. I, I had no side effects that I'm aware of. You know, I, I think a lot of people had the vaccine and had no issues at all. However, as you said, there seems to be a lot of alignment with, again, either a vaccine being the final, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back with someone who was fragile and or really having, you know, a, a, an abnormal response. But you do not have the data now to tell a first responder who was on the front line with no fucking PPE 
working all the hours while you hid in your house gotten fucking fast food and alcohol delivered to your home while you binge watch tiger king and now you have the audacity a year later to say they're selfish take their jobs on a on a vaccine that the efficacy has been proven now to be bullshit i think it had applications i think it saved some people but not in any way the magnitude that you could hold someone accountable and say you were spreading this infection because it wasn't fucking working let's be honest so to then still try and and, and i'm speaking to you now in you know november december of 2023 we're still having first responders being terminated because of this mandate we as a profession as a country need to stand up and say this fucking ends now what the hell are you doing there are no grounds now retrospectively to take these people's jobs and i had a uh, san francisco police officer joel evan on the show same exact thing so i just wanted to kind of you know put my monologue there because i'm in the middle I'm I had the vaccine. I'm not coming from any extreme, but I care about the wellness of this country. And if we come out of a two year pandemic getting fatter and sicker than we were before, it was never fucking about the health of the nation. Well, and, and you're right. Absolutely. A hundred percent on everything you said, you know, so let me jump back to one of the thing, first things. OK, so, you know, our organization, Firefighters for Freedom, you know, we're apolitical, right? And and I think that's important to understand from the standpoint that this was a political, I mean, you could sit back and watch, this is political theater that you're watching. And this was a heavily politicized event from day one, right? Um, and to me, when when we had conversations in the beginning of what we were starting, we recognize that this needs to be apolitical because in the fire service, right? We come from all, I mean, we're very conservative, a lot of us, but still there's people on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And it's, and it's the same thing with society, but in that space, we come to work and we do our job and we don't look at things through a political lens, right? If your house is burning down, or you're having a heart attack or you got shot. I'm not judging. I'm there to help you because you're a human being. And that's how we looked at this as well. We're apolitical from the standpoint of it doesn't matter. I don't care if you got the shot, that's the choice you made. I hope that you did the, the research and everything that, and you made that decision based on your own free will and for what you felt was right for you at the time. In hindsight, you know, again, every decision we make, right, has a consequence and we have, have to deal with that. Um, whatever that may be. That's what adulting is. But to that point is our organization, we have people, you know, in our lawsuit, right, that are vaccinated, that believe in that, but don't believe that your choice should be taken away. Don't believe it, it says freedom, right? <laughs> we the people freedom, right? That's what this is about. And our liberties, maintaining our liberties as Americans and for the government to come in or a bureaucratic leader, I use that word loosely because that's what this country is suffering from is a lack of leadership and organizations as well. But for them to come in and tell me or you what you have to do to your body 
in order for you to put food on the table and a sh- and clothes on your back and a shelter over your head is absolutely wrong. So I don't care if you're on the left or the right, the middle, you're wherever you should, if, if you believe in that same thing, that you should be able to make that decision for yourself and not be coerced, then that's the important thing. And, and we want everyone from every party because diversity is important in that aspect, right? We're all should be free to make our own decisions. Um, so I, I, that's really, to me, the, the crucial point in how we structured our organization. Um, because throughout this whole thing, everybody wanted, you know, oh, I won't say everybody, but there was a large chunk of people that tried to play us off as right-wing radicals, you know, racist, you know, again, this is political theater and they throw everything under the sun at you trying to discredit you. But I've been the mouthpiece for this organization and done a lot of interviews and I stand in a space of truth, you know, and light is the best disinfectant. I have nothing to hide. You know, I've laid it all out there. We've laid it all out there. Everything we believe is on our website, what we're about and what we're fighting for. And that's people's freedoms, you know, and us as first responders, we took an oath, right? And I think people forget that an oath. When you swear an oath, man, that's, if you think you're just standing there (laughs) and you're saying that, so you can get that cool fucking badge and go right around in big red and, you know, get a Starbucks and pound on your chest and whatever, you know, you're a jackass. You need to really go back and look at that oath that you took and understand what that means. The first thing it says is that you are protecting the constitution of the United States of America and then the state that you work in and then the laws and ordinances of whatever municipality you work for. There's a reason that constitution stands up there as number one, and that is it protects your God-given rights so that in an emergency, they don't trample those rights, right? That's what the Constitution and the Bill of Rights was put there for emergency situations so that you didn't lose your rights. And for, for them to, you know, come in and try and crush that and use your paycheck as coercion to get you you know, to submit to whatever that is, that's a loss of your liberties. And and that's to me what COVID was. It was the vehicle to create that power structure to gain control. Because tell me, would you have ever thought Americans would have locked themselves in, in their home for two weeks and then three months and then worn a mask and then stood six feet apart and done all of this? No. No, I never ever would have thought that but i understand how they did it and looking at it now i mean it's a very elegant but uh diabolical plan you know uh to gain control over people um and using fear and coercion um and it's sad. Um, and and I, I want people all over the world to understand what they did and how they were gaslighted. This was never about your public health. 
ever. It was about power, control, and money. Um, and the world seeing it. I mean, before, you know, when I was put off of work in, in December of 21, we knew at that time, Rachel Walensky, the head of the CDC, came out and said, it doesn't stop disease, doesn't stop the spread of anything. You can transmit it, you can catch it. What? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, nothing I changed. mean, we knew that, but she yeah. came out and said it on Fox News. So you sit there and you're like, okay, so then why? Like you said, here we are in 2023, December, rolling in 2024. I was just terminated for that. I still have nine other people that are off leave no pay waiting for their board of rights right now. And I was like, what are we doing? You can't staff the fire stations. You can't do this. You know, what, what are you doing now? You're torturing people and making examples so that you can move on to your next charade. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, for all the people that were taken off the line, that's even more work that the ones that are still on are having to do. So people don't understand that. They're like we're the ones that are left, you know, are working more and more. And this is it's funny with the whole the whole work week thing. People are like, well, we can't, you know, we can't even get enough people now. I'm like, it fuck exactly. Because you know what happens in 2023? People can go on the phone and go, What's it like being a firefighter? And of course, as you and I, the reason we wore the uniform for so many years is because there's so many fucking awesome things about being a firefighter. But that's all we knew when we got hired. Now, this younger generation can go, oh, shit, when I put in firefighter, the next word that pops up in Google is suicide or divorce or whatever, you know, and it's true. If you punch it in, you know, you put firefighter, I mean, there's, there's as you go down the list, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of negative words that, that populate next or the next couple of words. And yeah. this is the problem. So now you've got someone looking and go, oh, I'm going to either do that or I'm going to go work in UPS or Amazon or I'm going to go, you know, whatever insert option B. And they're yeah. like, well, fuck, wait a second. So I can be about to get off work and they can tell me you can't go home for another 24 hours holy shit at least that sounds terrible <laughs> yeah you know and so we didn't know that we kind of went in and we're like oh okay and everyone was like this is normal we're like, okay well this is normal but then you go to all these funerals and then you're like this is not fucking normal you know so now you know we have to be this voice so with with this all these all these elements of our profession where it's just fucking wrong whether it's the work week, whether it's vaccine mandates, whatever it is, we have to unify and push back and be a united front because when everyone else is hiding in their homes, they push three buttons on a telephone and pray that someone in uniform is going to show up on their family's worst fucking day. And one day, if this carries on, there will be no one at the end of the phone. And it sounds dramatic, but it's true. We are at a point of critical mass. But the irony is if you fix these things, you will have the same lines that I'm assuming that you had to compete against to get in the fire service that I had to compete against to get in Anaheim, a thousand certified people for a handful of jobs. We can get back to that again, but not if we keep just destroying our first responders physically, mentally, and, and even, you know, betraying them organizationally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I remember God, when I tested, there was, at the LA Convention Center, 20,000 people taking the written test. Sure. <laughs> what are the odds? There's, you know, a hundred positions, right? Or whatever it was, you know? And I mean, we have a large department. We have 3,500, you know, plus members. Um, but again, you know, uh, 
the union always keeps a certain amount of vacancies, right? Um, and and they keep certain staffing levels. They've done numbers that, you know, whatever. I, I, <laughs> we can go round and round on that topic. I mean, that's a whole nother topic. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was. There was definite competition for the job. And now, I mean, you know, we just went out, you know, the LAFD, they went and did a single function class uh, trying to hire just paramedics, right? From private industry, AMR, wherever. They got four people. In the four. city of Los Angeles. City of Los Angeles. Four. What is, how, what? How, you can't do anything with that. Um, a, that tells you no one wants to be a paramedic in the city of Los Angeles because they know you get ground to a pulp. Um, and B, they don't want to deal with, you know, the whole mandate issue because that's still in effect. Um, and, and then C comes into effect where, like you said, you know, they, we didn't have the internet and all that stuff back then, you know, the way that we do now. I mean, you walk around, everybody walks around with damn supercomputer in their pocket. Right. And, and you can find pretty much whatever you want and anything you don't want on that thing. And they, they might be sitting there having a coffee at, you know, X coffee shop and see the fire department across the street doing something like, or see them in the coffee shop and be like, Oh, that looks like a great job, you know? And then they start looking and they're like, Oh, Fuck that. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I've had rookies. I, mean, I remember having a rookie one time and this is like 2000, 10, maybe, I don't know, 12, 14, somewhere. And we went on a cardiac arrest, you know, and came back and she was spun out like, Totally distraught. So, you know, sit down at the kitchen table. Hey, what's up? What's going on? I've never seen a dead body before. I'm like, okay. Most people haven't. You know, you're like, okay, yeah, I get that. But then the next comment floored me. It's like, well, I didn't know that this is what we do. I'm sorry, what? It, how did you get this far? You're, you're in a fire station on an engine or a truck, how did you not know this is what we did? That'd be like saying you didn't know we go to fires and that buildings burn down, right? Um, and that we go inside of them or on top of them. So, you know, that comes from recruiting and, you know, we're, we definitely have a different generation than we did 20 years ago than we did 50 years ago, right? I mean, it, they're constantly changing. And so everybody always says, oh, it's not like this, you know, oh, sure. It wasn't, but you knew what you were getting into. You understood what the fire service or the law enforcement or the military was about, right? You understood the parameters that you're stepping into. You might not have known all the nuances and everything uh, because when you get there, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> okay, I, I knew this, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of other interesting things that come along with it that's to be given but you know when recruitment and stuff goes out and they go to college campuses and they're you know they're hiring chiefs right people with degrees and and all these other things sociology degrees and it's like we you're you're selling them on 
a great schedule, lots of time off, good pay, benefits, pension, but you're not explaining to them what the job really is. You know, it's a blue collar job and you get your ball stepped on every day and you see the underbelly of society and you have to deal with that. And so through our conversation with this young lady, I said, you need to really go home, you know, tomorrow or whatever, and, and really process what it is we do and, and have that conversation with yourself and your family. And are you going to be able to do this? Because this is a daily thing, especially here in the city of Los Angeles, you're going to run, you could run five, six, seven of those a day, you know? Um, but I'm telling you right now, you're going to be a different person in five years than you are right now. You're going to be a totally different person. So you need to be able to understand what's coming down the pipe. And if you can handle that, you know, and I don't think those are conversations that most people have and that recruitment definitely doesn't have with that, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's just, I think the world we live in now, the fire service is really going to struggle moving forward because we don't have, you know, they're really trying to breed out a type personalities. They you know, uh, you and I would be considered toxic masculinity. You know, everything is going to down the DEI road, right? Um, and that's a whole nother topic. Um, but to me, that really is going to leave a big hole in the fire service um, because A, they don't want those types. And then those types are going to be, you know, like, okay, well, I'm going to find something else, you know, because all this other nonsense that's associated with it is why am I going to put up with that bullshit? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I mean, we, there's, there's many layers to this. I mean, as a profession, we've done a terrible job branding the way we train ourselves. Like I, I, I've just been that absolute shit magnet black cloud as a paramedic my whole life, the EMT and paramedic. I've never had a code save 14 years. And I even just did CPR on a plane a few weeks ago. That person died too. I'm just that guy, you know? So you, you know, we, we train like, all right, you do your mega code. I gave, you know, this drug, I, I cardioverted, whatever. And then boom, all right, beautiful. They came back, normal sinus. But that's not the real world either. We set ourselves up for failure. Like no one tells you a medic school, just so you know, 95 of these percent of these people are going to fucking die. 95. If you're lucky, you might get, you know, I never had that station visit with the cake. I'll tell you that much. Um, so, you know, you've got that, but not to doom and gloom it. There is a blatant, obvious answer, you know, ask, you know, find out about the, a week in the life of your favorite sports star, another athlete who, whose entire, you know, world depends on on his health and his performance or her health and her performance and look at their week. Does it look anything like yours in the fire service? No, there's a fucking reason for that because that person's trying to eke out performance and health. So the closer that we get to LeBron James, you know, whoever is your, your, your person, the more people are going to circle around and start coming back. But we have just got to this point now and you know we, we romanticize about you know the the war years the the firefighters of the 70s and 80s and some of them ran a shitload of calls but most of them especially in you know new york and some of them, they were fire only 
Now, this introduction of EMS has changed things completely. And now you've got inter-facility transports and you know all these other things that they're throwing at us. So there is absolutely hope, but we have to have that courageous leadership that goes, look, we have we have got to do some massive changes. We've got to reinvest in our people. And I always point to to the corporate space. If you look at Google and some of these, you know, revered businesses in 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 the corporate side, they're pushing to, you know, like a four-day work week, four nine-hour days, because they're realizing that their people are getting as much, if not more, work done with a three-day weekend. So it doesn't, you know, Bruno Cini talked about, oh, we're a business and customer service. All right, well, then fucking model Google, not some Indonesian sweatshop. You know what I mean? We've got to actually take these lessons from the sports world, from the business world, and apply it to us. And we've got to brand properly and educate the people on what it is that we actually do. Because the problem is when we go to these public spaces, people, I mean, I hear it all the fucking time. They think that we sit around playing cards and waiting for a fire. And I'm like, have you stood outside in any of your main roads in your city? Yeah. Do you hear sirens a lot? Yeah. Well, what the fuck? Do you, what do you think they're doing? That means they're not at the station and not playing cards. But it's such a disconnection that people just think we're backdraft. That's it. You know, and then probably that young lady was like, oh, we, we always save them. They don't die. I see it on you know Chicago Fire. They always make it out. You know, yeah, so well, and that's the thing, too, is now, I mean, pretty much look at and I'm speaking from, well, you know, I'm going to speak pretty across the board as well from conversations that I've had. And, and I'm sure you've had the same ones that literally the fire service has become the dumping ground. Um, when I say that, what I mean is anything that comes through dispatch, like when it, so originally it goes to 911, right? If you're close to a freeway, it goes to CHP and then they disseminate it to fire or police. So if it goes to, to the police, Usually nine times out of 10, they're going to try and pawn it off and send it back to us. Um, and so we go on these calls and you're like, there's no need for us to be here, right? Uh, it's a mental health issue and that's supposed to be taken care of by PD or it's, a, you know, so there's so many things that we get tasked with doing. And because firemen are that, we'll make it work, right? That's what we do. And we step into that space and we do make it work, but to our own detriment. And then later we have the kitchen table and we just sit around and we bitch about it. And then this is the biggest thing that I see is <sighs> complacency breeds comfort and comfort kills. And that's what I see going on in the fire service right now is and I saw that from COVID especially is everybody was in the fight and they were totally stoked and this is wrong and so on and so forth. And then they got, you know, they got their exemptions denied. Uh, and then all of a sudden there was this big frenzy. We're going to fight. We're going to fight. We're going to fight. But then when the city said, okay, we're going to, you know, they take all the exemptions, right? Whatever. Then everybody got comfortable again. And they're like, oh, I don't need to fight. That's over. I'm good. My job's secure. I'm safe. You know, I've got my overtime shift. I've got, and all the while you're missing 
what you were fighting for in the beginning. Um, and so they get complacent. And then the next time this happens, that, you know, because the next strain of whatever is so dangerous, they're going to pull that exemption and be like, oh, this is way gnarlier. You lose your exemption. Um, you've already given up your rights, you know, so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think that whole thing is you said we need leaders, but guys get comfortable, right? They're like, oh, God, you know, I don't want to step into that space. I've got a good job. I make good money. I've got, you know, my toys. I get to go on vacation. You know, I can have a whiskey every once in a while, whatever. You know, whatever it is, they get complacent. And then that complacency, they get comfortable. And then they get killed. And 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 whether that's in your training, right? You're When you're young, you're at a busy house all the time. And then as you get older, right, you get, you're like, okay, I need to go to a slower spot. And then your training slows down and then you're not doing any training. And then guess what? You're out of shape. You don't know what's going on. You're not paying attention to the stuff. And then you go into a building and you get smoked. Um, it, it, it works all the way around, you know, that analogy. And so guys don't want to step into that leadership. They don't want to do the work. That's the other thing I've found. It's like, man, please step into that space. And this is, and it's not just in the fire service, it's across the country. That's one of, you know, I've traveled all over and spoke on big stages and events and things. And, and one of the things that I really try and impress on people is nobody's coming to save you. You think the next fucking politician that you vote for is going to save you bacon? He's not, he's a politician. The person, we are the ones that are going to save ourselves. So, you know, you don't like what's going on in your kid's school, right? You don't like the fact that they're pushing some agenda. Then while you were busy watching Saturday football and playing fantasy football and dancing with the stars, the other side got in there and, and they're pushing that agenda from the ground up. So, you know, we have to take our communities back at a grassroots level. It starts from the bottom up, right? It's not top down as control. And so whether it's, you know, we get complacent in our lives. We don't, you know, you, you're a rough day at work. You just want to hang out on the weekend. You don't want to be involved. You know, oh, it's too much work. Somebody else is already doing it, right? But then when it doesn't go the way that you want and things go sideways, you don't have anybody to blame but yourself because you're not involved. You have to be engaged in that process. And the same thing goes in the fire service. Man, if your union sucks, guess what? Get in there. Be that change. You know, if you've got horrible captains and chiefs, you need to take those tests and step into that space to create that leadership. And guys just get comfortable, unfortunately. And it's it's sad. I, I don't know how to change that other than to say, you know, do it, make it happen, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I've stood in this space out front of this is like, man, come on, stand with me. Let's fight back with this. Let's be that change. You have to be the change you want to see. Nobody's going to do it for you, right? How many, how many drug addicts have you had a conversation with? How many alcoholics, you know, I mean, I worked Skid Row for 20 years in downtown LA. And it's like, you could have conversations until you're blue in the face. It's only when things get really bad is that that person has to take that step, that action, and they have to want that change for themselves. 
because otherwise, you know, it doesn't happen. A perfect example. You mentioned Skid Row. I had uh, Judge Craig Mitchell on the show, and he started the uh, Skid Row Running Club, where he would he would literally run with you know some of the homeless and some of the the addicts that were in that area, and and they ended up getting you know I mean obviously there were success stories and and some people that didn't, but they ended up running internationally in marathons just because a judge who hated seeing what was going on outside his building, and you know obviously a lot of the people would end up in front of him. And just did something else to be part of the solution. So, you know, another incredible story. You made the comment earlier about being happily retired. And I want to dissect those two words just for a second as we close out. One of the least discussed elements of mental health challenges, you know, emotional damage, however you want to label it, is organizational stress or organizational betrayal even worse. And even the soldiers I've had on the show and you know the the war fighters that, you know, reflect on the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, you know, the fact that we left our allies behind. And you know, there's such organizational betrayal through their eyes. But you have kind of led us through, you know, your time in uniform and obviously the the years you've given to LA LA City. And then this happens. And then now, you know, as of a, a few weeks ago, that's it. The door slams shut. And that transition voluntarily can be challenging for many of us because that's our tribe. It's our purpose. It's who we are. It's what we identify as. But when it's snatched from you, I can imagine that's even more jarring. So talk to me. You say happily retired. Talk, talk to me truly how that feels now and how you're doing. Well, one of the things I really want to touch on quick before that is what you talked about is we make that our identity, right? And that's something that I think is crucial to change in the fire service. Um, you know, coppers, you don't see it a ton, right? Because they're, unfortunately, they're the first person you call when you're in trouble and the last person you ever want to talk to, right? At a party, so they, they hang out together in that aspect. Right. Um, so they don't like to say, Oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a police officer when they're off duty. They don't want anybody to know, you know, whereas firemen are like, Oh yeah, I'm fireman. You know, that's what I do because everybody loves me. Um, you know, and soldiers, you know, I mean, they're very humble. A lot of them, you know, I mean, if you're a seal, they're not walking around pounding on their chest, but they definitely, there's another dynamic there as well. Right. So, for the fire service to me, you know, we see guys and, and that's their purpose, right? That's all they live, eat, sleep, and drink fire slayers. Right. Um, and then when they get, they retire, they don't have any other purpose. They don't have any other, they don't know what to do. And so I think it's really crucial that you have to understand that's your career. That's your, not your identity. That's not who you are. You need to drill down and understand who you are at your core. What do you like to do when you're not in the fire service besides drink beer and fucking go to the river, right? What is it that drives you? What are the things that you like that you enjoy? Um, and start identifying with that and start not identifying as a firefighter when you're off of work, start realizing that you're some, you're a human being, you're a person, figure out what that is. Um, and that being a firefighter is your career, right? And at some point a career ends, 
And, and if you don't have an identity out of that, you're really going to be in a deep, dark, shitty place. And we see that a lot. So, you know, I, I want to touch on that now, as far as for me, uh, where am I at with this? Um, <laughs> well, I'm still in multiple lawsuits. Um, but it, it's, you know, all the things we talked about leadership, uh, you know, one of the sayings in the fire service that I think has kind of become a cliche at this point now is leave it better than you found it. Right. Um, you go to a structure buyer, uh, and, and you do overhaul after that, that place is spotless. It looks better than half of the, when you went in, right? I mean, the floor, it's crazy. You guys know what I'm talking about, but we're not seeing that in the fire service. And, and, and one of the things for me is, you know, they terminated me based on a condition of employment that didn't exist, right? It's not there. It's not in my MOU. My union didn't agree to it. I was terminated illegally. And with that, you took my ability away to be that leader. You took the ability away for me to leave it better than I found it. To be the change that I wanted to see. I can't run for a union president. I can't make it to chief or whatever in, in that organization, you took it from me based on a fallacy, on a lie, on coercion. Um, and so because I recognized that I was, I was penalized for it. So, you know, from that standpoint, <clears throat> that's difficult. Um, I don't, I didn't, when I left the fire service, you know, when I left my shift and I went home, I wasn't a firefighter. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I, that's not my identity. I have my own identity. Like I talked about of, you know, the things I like to do, who I am. I, I went through a phase where I did a lot of introspection to really understand that. Um, so, you know, for me on that aspect, that's not soul crushing where it is to a lot of guys. Um, but again, the fact that it's been taken from you and you didn't voluntarily say, okay, you know what? I've done my service and my time and, and I'm ready to go and I'm going to retire and I'm going to go do whatever is next in my life. Right. Um, that's, that's the hardest part from that standpoint. Um, you know, you, you allowed, you cut off my ability to leave something better, to leave a, a, a mark in that, and you also penalize me by taking, you know, my future earnings away. You know, I'm, I'm 55 um, and I've spent my career in public service, you know. And so now I have to, you know, it's you, you go through that process of, okay, what am I going to do now? You know, uh, you took my, what I was, uh, my ability to make a living for myself away. You, you know, took my pensionable away, uh, you know, those things. And so those are, you know, those are the things that I struggle with uh, that, that are frustrating to me because it wasn't on my decision uh, and it was, and it was wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 
I'm happy uh, because I know that I did the right thing um, and I didn't compromise my integrity. You know, to me, if you were to ask me, what is your number one core value? That would be integrity. Um, so, you know, character is, is built by doing the right thing when no one's looking, right? Um, it's very easy to, to compromise your integrity. And for me, you know, it's been where I answer to a higher power, um, to somebody bigger than me. And, you know, again, like I said, you know, you took that oath and, and that if I step back and I said, well, and I just answered to myself, it would be very easy for me to rationalize or justify the reason why I capitulated and did what I did because I had, a, I needed that paycheck to support my family, right? I To pay my house payment, to pay my mortgage, to do all these things, right? We can rationalize and justify any of these actions. But in the end, to me, that would be compromising my integrity because I took an oath. And when I, I don't take that lightly, right? And that, and that is to protect and defend the citizens from, you know, and the constitution. And, and we always look at it as, well, I'm could be out there. I'm not at work. I'm not helping them. But in reality, the way I'm looking at it is no, I am helping them. That oath to the constitution is super crucial. It's limiting the power of those people to do this to someone else again. And I might not be on the front line in the space of, you know, helping you with your heart attack or your burning building or whatever that is, right? But I'm defending your liberties. I'm standing in that space between the oath. And because it's really easy to say, I swear, you know, I, John Knox solemnly swear, you know, blah, 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 whatever your oath is. And then, you're, every day you're like, oh, yeah, I took an oath and it's cool and yeah, I'm upholding it. And then when the rubber meets the road and shit like this happens, are you really now? Are you really going to step into that space and do what you said you're going to do? Or are you going to rationalize and just justify your actions because of your wants and your needs, right? Because this is bigger than that. There's a country at stake, really, when you think about it, right? That they have needs and wants as well. And, you know, I look at my, my, I have two daughters and they're, I have to be able to get up every morning and look in that mirror and be able to say, I did everything I could to protect their rights for the future. So that later, if this goes sideways in whatever direction, they'd be like, dad, you were there. Why didn't you do anything? What did you do? Well, I didn't, you know, because I needed a paycheck for you guys or whatever. Well, man, to me, that that's a, that's something that I I couldn't I couldn't answer that question. Um, I don't judge anyone that has made a different decision. We all make decisions, and we all have different paths, right? Um, and I'm not the person to say that it's right or wrong. There's only one judge, right? And, 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 and that's not me. 
Um, I know that there's a bigger plan and that everybody has a path and, and we all make decisions and we have to understand that they have consequences. My decision, you know, as hard as I fought so far has led to the fact that I was terminated <laughs> and I wasn't paid for two years, but I'm not crying about that. I'm still fighting, but I knew that that was a possibility, but the outcome of it was much bigger to me, you know? Um, and I, you know, my personal is that I just, that paycheck was not the driver, you know, there's, there's a reason I got into public service and that's to, to help people. And this is part of that. And that's part of that. Oath. So that's how kind of how I'm dealing with it, where I'm at in that space. Um, you know, and so now still just driving along, you know, we're now we're working in a space of legislation, you know, for due process um, so that, you know, your due process as a firefighter can be ensured that you get it. Unlike what happened to me and many of us out there. Um, and also individuals who were what I like to call mandate injuries um, because it wasn't necessarily because of just the vaccine you know, or the shot, right? I mean, we have plenty of individuals who have been damaged by that um, and who would have never taken it, but under coercion and duress, they took that to maintain their job. And I don't blame them for it. You know, it's, again, it's their decision. Um, and and they made it freely. Well, I won't say they made it freely, but they, they felt that that's what they had to do. But unfortunately, under duress and coercion, they made it. And so we're working, you know, and I mean, again, suicides, right? Mental health issues. These are all mandate issues. Um, they're not just vaccine issues. They're mandate issues. And so we're looking at working uh, right now with legislation here in the state, uh, putting something forward to hold these uh, counties, cities, municipalities uh, responsible for the wellness of these individuals, you know, making sure that they get taken care of, that their medical bills are paid, that, you know, they're getting the mental health uh, care that they need because let's face it. I mean, if you really boil this down, th there's crimes against humanity here. Cause if you really step back and look at the big picture, it's not hyperbole. It's not sensationalism. If you really follow the money, follow follow the money you look at I mean, like you said it's not public health it's public health has gotten worse i mean all of those things are nonsense and so when you look at, at the underlying issue here these individuals that were coerced into taking this need our help they need someone to stand in that space and to create that legislation um you know it's no different than the people at 9-11 right you had the zardoga act that that's protecting their medical right and you know somebody's continuing to keep up that fight to get that thing extended right i mean a lot of health issues that people had after that well we have a lot of health issues after this you know after these mandates um so i think that that really needs to be 
the focus moving forward, you know, is how do we, um, help our first responders that put their lives on the line during this situation and dealt with all the mandate issues that have come up out of this since then and, and make sure that they're not left behind, you know, cause truly it is, it's a fucking battlefield. You can look at it at so many different angles. So that's kind of, you know, that helps drive me. And it's tiring too. You know, <laughs> it's all of it. You're just like, there's days you're like, holy crap, man. Well, help here. <laughs> Somebody throw me a, a life vest. <laughs> well, speak, speaking of that. So if people want to learn more and maybe help, where's the best place to find Firefighters for Freedom online? So you can go to our website. It's www.firefighters, the number four, freedom. And it's either .com or .org. Um, if you just Google Firefighters for Freedom, any way you spell it, it comes up. Um, we have a website. Um, we have a, a legal and operational fund that you can donate to there. Um, we also have uh, Hold the Line, which <clears throat> is uh, money that we have raised through donations. We've donated over $110,000 um, to date to members that were off duty, leave without pay, you know, in this fight um, illegally to help them with their bills and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and then you can find us on, I mean, we have Instagram is probably our biggest um, go on Instagram. Uh, that's where we do most of our, you know, posts and all that stuff. And then it feeds out to Twitter and, and whatever, you know, right now, because everybody thinks everything's over, <laughs> even though it's not, you know, we don't have a lot of content that we're pushing out, but I mean, Instagram probably right now is our, our biggest thing. We, you know, we have 50,000 plus followers on there. Um, it's good. Um, I mean, we've done podcasts on there. You can go and look, we've had, you know, Peter McCulloch on, we've done, we do a lot of stuff, um, you know, through that, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, we've done mental health stuff. We've got different things that we're working on trying to, you know, move that forward in this space because we know that that's a big issue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are probably the two best places to find us is our website and then Instagram. Brilliant. Well, John, I want to thank you. We've been chatting for two and a half hours now. But, uh, you know, don't, we still scrape the surface, I'm sure, of a lot of you know, other elements of your life. But it's such an important conversation and, you know, it's something I've been talking about for three years now. However, the fact that, you know, as we said, what, four weeks ago, this happened yet again to you so late in the game, just, just underlines that we need to roll up our sleeves and, you know, revisit the fight if we can have forgotten about it. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. 